Some months ago, um, one of our dear members uh, asked me as we were sort of getting towards the end of of Romans, um, would would you be able to give us something that will help us to put the whole book together? And uh, I thought at that time, well, I could could write up something, an outline that would draw out the themes and, and distribute that. But then it occurred to me, well, why not a message? Why not a sermon with very detailed sermon notes that would sort of do the same thing? And so today we are stringing together um, the 16 chapters of Romans like beads on a necklace. And the string of the necklace is, is, uh, is the doxology that we find at the very end of, of this book. We will see in that, in that doxology... Uh, as we read it together, that uh, that the gospel, this is the core, the central point of, of Romans, the gospel glorifies God. Now to him, uh, the only wise God, be all glory uh, forever uh, through Jesus Christ. Amen. The gospel glorifies God, but the gospel also strengthens us, as we will see in Romans uh, chapter five, chapters 5 through 8. It strengthens us in the obedience of faith. The gospel also then uh, goes out to the nations and rescues the nations uh, as that is preached by the command of God, chapters 9 through uh, 11. And finally, the gospel itself gives shape uh, to the church, the ministry of the church as we, as we live together, as we display the obedience of faith as a church, living together for the glory of God to make unbelievers hungry, thirsty for the grace of God. Chapters 12 through 16. So, uh, let's, uh, let's take a look uh, together uh, at, the, at the last chapter of Romans. For this, our final message through this lovely chapter. We'll begin at verse 21. Uh, which we missed a couple of weeks ago, uh, just be, read through that and then leading into the doxology. This is the Word of God. Beginning at verse 21, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. Um, so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, uh, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Uh, Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Um, Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Now, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, uh, has been made known to all the nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore. Through Jesus 
Christ. Amen. The gospel is uh, not, you must believe in God. It is not, you must trust Christ as your Savior. It is not, you must be born again, while those things are true. The gospel, the good news of the gospel, is that God, in the person of Jesus Christ, has rescued mankind from his just wrath through the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, all for the glory of God. It is what God has done through Jesus to rescue sinners. That is the good news. And that news, phrased that way, it's not about what we do, but what God has done, is always good news, and it always glorifies God. Secondly, it always strengthens us. And thirdly, it always is a a note of rescue to the nations. And finally, this gospel um, gives shape, definite shape, to what the church looks like, how that church functions. So first of all, we're going to, we're going to look through uh, chapters 1 through 4 that describe how it is that the gospel glorifies God. Chapter 1, the gospel is the power of God and all glory uh, goes uh, to Him. The well-known summary verses of six, verses 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteousness of God is God's gift to us, not our gift to Him. You come to faith, or you come to God by faith, as God accepts you and justifies you by faith, but then you also grow by faith as a Christian, as the Spirit nourishes that faith and obedience within you. However, a fallen man in his rebellion is under God's wrath, verses 18 to 32. God's wrath, wrath, in fact, is revealed in the way in which he gives people over to their sins. They, they experience uh, in their rebellion the fruit of God's wrath. This is, this is what occurs when people uh, worship the creature rather than the creator. We generally think mostly, as we look at chapter 1, of the shameful acts with one another that God is, is, um, uh, 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 is giving people over to. But it is not just those acts. The end of the chapter speaks of all kinds of other acts of unrighteousness. Things closer to our hearts. Things like envy, deceit, uh, gospel, uh, uh, gossip, and, and even disobedience to parents. Um, Even as they judge God, the irreligious know they deserve death. 
verse 32. Important to understand chapter 1. Even as they judge God, the irreligious know they deserve death. But it is not just the irreligious who are opposed to God. Uh, The religious and moral types do not escape God's judgment either. This is chapter 2. Religious people um, inoculate their souls, we could even say our souls, against God by taking Him in small pieces, small bits, that then keep us from understanding and living before Him in all of His glorious splendor. This is evidenced by the fact, as verse 1 says, that you pass judgment on others and so condemn yourself because you practice the same things. You do what you tell people not to do. Verse 23, you boast in the law but dishonor God by breaking it. So you too are storing up God's wrath. Uh, Chapter 3 brings it all together and, and really is describing Uh, The situation, all Jews, all people, both Jew and Gentile, are under the power of sin, verse 9. And none will escape, none is righteous, not even one. Uh, No one understands, no one seeks after God, verse 10. And this section uh, that follows then is a a description uh, of how uh, sin is, is part of all of us and the tongue shows the wickedness of our hearts. If we would just pay attention to it, the tongue shows the wickedness of your heart. Evil is everywhere, even in us. And we are left with the realization that God's wrath should terrify us. For we are all sinners, falling short of the glory of God. And we get here in verse 21, the very first peak um, at in Paul's argument, the first peak um, of the um, the good news, verse twenty one and twenty two. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction; all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The gospel glorifies God. It is not in you. It is in Him. And chapter 4 gloriously strips away any possibility of our own contribution to our right standing before God. And the example of Abraham is used there, who believed God, and his believing God was counted as righteousness. Verse 3. And this is the very opposite of what we would expect. We expect the harder we work for God, the more thankful He is for us. The better we are. And we take some measure of pride in that. But chapter 4, verse 5 just turns it completely around. Now to the one who does not work, but trusts on Him who justifies the ungodly, or the one who does not worship. His faith is counted as righteousness. Very opposite of what we'd expect. This is what many of the reformers would call that alien righteousness that comes from outside of ourselves and we receive as a gift. The gospel, again, is not that you must come to Christ, that you must be born again, that you or that you must live right 
in order to please God. That is not the gospel. The gospel, as summarized by, summarized by uh, Luther, is that passive righteousness, not our active doing, but what we receive, our passive righteousness that glorifies God. Your works glorify you. Receiving this righteousness by faith glorifies God. The gospel glorifies God, but the gospel also strengthens you. Chapters 5 through 8. The gospel glorifies God, first of all, by securing your peace with God. Uh, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We get confused about this, but God does not save you in order to love you, but because he already does. Gerhardus Voss said uh, the best argument that God won't stop loving us is that he never began. Do you get the logic of that? There was not a time when he did not love. How could he stop? And so we see in chapter 5, verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so we stand before God, either in Adam or in Christ, either connected to the first man who sinned and fell, or in connection with the second man who was fully righteous. We are born born into that covenant relationship with Adam, and his sin is yours. But we are born again into that covenant relationship with Christ, and his righteousness is yours. And so we may say, as Paul does in verse 19, for as the one man's disobedience, as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Yes, of course, uh, there are traces of the old man that draw us back to self-trust and a disobedience. Yet, Listen, please, yet where sin abounds, grace increases and abounds even more. Is there anything that could smash our anxious insecurities more than that? You are in Christ. And God can see you in no other way than being in Christ. And that has all kinds of implications for how we live. Beginning with chapter 6, then, we see that because we are, are in the risen Christ, sin can no longer keep us down. By faith, you've been saved from the power or the dominion of sin. I, I want you to think for a moment... Zero in introspectively. Who are you at your core? Peer into your own heart. What do you see? How do you identify yourself? Who are you? I 
may you find your answer in chapter 6. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too, being risen with Him, walk in newness of life. Who are you? A new person, dead to sin, and now alive to righteousness. So sin no longer controls you. The body of sin was brought to nothing or rendered ineffective. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the body of sin was rendered ineffective. It cannot derail you. You are no longer enslaved by sin, verse 6. You died in and with Christ, so you are set free from the power of sin, verse 7. And this is the very first command, a word in the imperative mood, in the entire book of, of Romans, It's not until verse 11 of chapter 6 that Paul tells you to do something. And his first command is consider yourself. Think about yourself. Reckon yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God. Who are you? Dead to sin and alive to God. Verse 6, as many have said, uh, keep you from uh, from under confidence. Chapter 7, where we're heading now, will keep you from overconfidence. But uh, chapter 7 opens up with what I think is a, among the most underappreciated themes in the entire book of Romans and, in fact, in the entire Scripture, and that is the fact that we have a new spouse. We have a new spouse. We are no longer married to the law. That is married to our performance, our subpar performance to the law, and under condemnation and a sense of failure. But we are married, uh, we are married to Christ. We share his name, we share his wealth, we share the benefits of what he accomplished on the cross. You belong to your spouse, Jesus. And it's important never to get, forget that. Especially when the tension within our own hearts would split us into two. Sometimes, as a matter of fact, we still do prefer sin. And we do even what we don't want to do at times. But Paul says this in chapter 7, verse 23 and 24, But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. This is the battle making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Verse 22, but I delight in the law of God in my members. In my inner being. Chapter, chapter 8, uh, you have been married to Christ And therefore, you may not view yourself any longer as a single person, but only as a married person, a person married to Jesus. As we have said quite a few times since Romans 8, uh, this glorious passage begins with the statement, there is therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it ends with the great phrase, there is no separation. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. No condemnation and no separation. 
And the spirit of adoption is what bridges the two of them. The spirit of adoption who is with us in our groaning lives in this world. And we are able, therefore, every step of the way to say, Abba, Father, I need your help. Abba, Father, give me grace to make it through this day for the glory of God. And you will. Because you're married to his son. He hears you. The gospel strengthens us. And it is a beautiful thing. The gospel glorifies God. Thirdly, the gospel rescues the nations. Verse chapters 9 through 11. Chapter 9 really takes us a step back and it's really getting to a different question. It says, well, who gets the gift? Who in fact is married to the, to the, uh, to, uh, to Christ our spouse? Um, who gets saved? And we are gloriously free from having to make predictions about that. It's not ours to predict. It's not ours to guess who God chooses and calls and saves. But we see in verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. This is to the glory of God. Because verse 16 goes on to say, it's not about us, it's not in us, it's not in our will, it's not in our exertion, it's not in our work or our effort, but that God's purposes in election might stand. God gets the glory in sovereign election. Chapter 9 goes on to say that, uh, that the part of this is, is actually uh, delightfully surprising. Listen, listen to what Paul is, is laying out before us here. That the Gentiles aren't even looking for God and he finds them. And the, the Jews, the religious ones, thought they had God already. By keeping his law, or the parts of it they wanted to, and they missed him. Chapter 10 goes on to speak of those, those who are the object, really, of the mission of the church, um, are, are ignorant of God's righteousness. And how often I find this to be true you speak to someone who does not know God and they will, they, will, they will first of all look to their own righteousness of what they must do. And they are ignorant of what God has provided. We, and we still think that way ourselves sometimes, that it is your gift to God that pleases him rather than God's gift to you. Verse 3 speaks of this tension in the human heart, wanting to establish our own righteousness, wanting to make it stand before God. But instead, Paul says, you must submit to God's righteousness. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? Give up the fight. Submit to the gift. Enjoy what God has given. Because Christ, verse 3, 4, is at the end, he's the end of the law for righteousness for all who believe. You, you attain righteousness by not straining for it. You attain righteousness by asking for it. 
Verse 9, the, the, uh, we rest in Christ's righteousness, not our own, and you will be saved. And so the, the famous phrase in, in verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so we pray that God would provide preachers uh, to take that message to the lost. Once again, in, cha- in chapter 11, we're, we're asked where uh, another question is raised, and that is, well, where does Israel fit in all of this? God is, is, is bursting out of the old covenant bounds, and he's, he's raking in the nations. Well, what's going on with Israel in all this? Many in Israel were hardened. They rejected God in the flesh, Jesus. Many Gentiles, on the other hand, were believing and were being saved. So it is God's mission strategy um, to bring judgment upon the Israelites, so as they, even as they crucified Jesus, so that the gospel would go out to the Gentiles, and God would therefore make grace so attractive that those who don't have it will envy people that do. That's what we're doing in Elmer. That's what we're doing in South Jersey. Cultivating a community of people in whom grace is so attractive that those who don't have it will envy you who do. Chapter 11, uh, verse 11. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? That is, fall away entirely and forever and ever? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Israel is jealous and Israel will be restored she will be re-grafted into the olive tree from which she was uh, cut away in her rebellion. The gospel glorifies God because God brings Israel back to the original tree. He doesn't set up two trees. The church over here and Israel over there. That does not glorify Christ. What glorifies God is now is one tree made of both natural branches and then, and, then the, um, and then the branches, the Gentile branches grafted in. Oh, the depth. How, what else could Paul say at this point? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has been given a gift gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. The gospel glorifies God. The gospel strengthens believers. The gospel rescues the nations. And the gospel gives shape to the church. Chapters 12 through 16. Everything in the church is is ours by the mercies of God. Jesus was sacrificed for you so that you would present your bodies as living sacrifices to one another. 
And here the overarching ethic of the church is the one of self-sacrifice. We live out our unity, verse 5 says, because we are members one of another. We belong to each other. How can we do anything but practice and exercise our unity? And so the richest description of self-sacrifice of Jesus' life for us and in us are verses 9 through 12, beginning with the phrase, uh, love is genuine. And it's the real thing. And everything else flows from it. Kids, kids, I want you to, I want you to think about how you can follow this. Very simple, but very difficult. And that is you be a friend. You be a friend to unpopular kids in your neighborhood, in your school. They may be alone. They may be excluded. Uh, these are the ones that Jesus sought out. These are the ones that the cool kids usually ignore. You be the one to seek them out. Love is genuine. Live by the mercies of God. And of course, it's how we conduct ourselves in the public sphere. We are to submit to civil authorities, Romans 13.1. God removes one from office. God raises up another. And yet still, always for the good of the church. So we respect and we honor those whom God raises up. And in our relationship with each other, verse 8, we are to, we are to owe no one except, uh, this, uh, except uh, the gift of love. Chapter 14, again, speaks of our unity, that we, are, we show the world a picture of Jesus. And using the example of the weaker brothers and the stronger brothers, uh, where we're, where there are differences within the church, we lay down our lives for the other. Unity in the church is always more beautiful than getting our own way. And so chapter 15, we welcome one another as Christ welcomes you for the glory of God. We are called as an international family fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy. And so we have great hope for the building up of the church. May the God of all hope fill you all with joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And we display that unity, chapter 16, both in the way we greet one another and in the way we avoid certain people. When we greet one another, we are saying to each other, no condemnation and no separation. However, if there is someone who is causing division in the church, we avoid them so as not to strengthen that division. And for all this, then we again conclude, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, we pray that the, the message of your grace, as it is laid out in this beautiful, most beautiful of all books, would be imprinted on our hearts and lives, and that we would take it with us and be shaped by it, to be humbled by it and, and lifted up by it um, all the rest of our days. We thank you for Jesus, our foundation. We thank you for uh, the righteousness that we've received as a gift that we take passively. Not ours, but Christ, which we receive by faith. And we pray, O oh God, that you would strengthen us in our families, husbands and wives together, children among themselves in relationship to parents, adult children with their siblings and their parents, we pray that in our church family as well, Lord, we would be caring for one another, uh, even as you have cared for and welcomed us. And may the grace that Jesus has formed in us be attractive to those in the world, that they may, they may see the glory and the beauty of Christ. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen.